just like to begin by saying Happy Thanksgiving. I know from my own experience it can be a very powerful day in a three-month retreat. I think this might be the first time in seven years that I've been on the other side of it. (laughs) So I was reflecting back to what my experience had been like on this day in practice. And I remembered moments of incredible gratitude, feeling of incredible grace. I also remembered moments of intense loneliness and sadness. It tends to be a day that we can experience the full range of experience. And because we've been sitting as long as we have, it's often very intense. So please, Hold yourselves gently. I wanted to also take the opportunity tonight to speak about generosity and gratitude because they may be close to our hearts in these moments. Thanksgiving Day is traditionally a day of both generosity and gratitude, the giving of thanks. This morning I went out for a walk with my husband Edwin and I said to him, do you know anything of the history of Thanksgiving in America? And he really laughed when I said it and he said, are you a Canadian asking me, an Australian who lives in a country that doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving, (laughs) what Thanksgiving is. (laughs) Anyhow, he managed to tell me a little bit, and then I went on the web to check it out. (laughs) And I thought, you know, there's a number of people here who aren't Americans, who may not be so familiar with, with what Thanksgiving is in this country. And I know Thanksgiving also has roots in, um, in ancient ways of, you know, at the time of harvest, a time of abundance and of giving thanks. And I know it's been prevalent in the Native American culture where, you know, there was not just one Thanksgiving in a year, but six Thanksgivings. Aside from that, I looked at what was, you know, the, where, what were the roots of the traditional American Thanksgiving. And this is the story that I came up with, that um, the first Thanksgiving party, celebration, gathering, was held back in the 1600s. And it was uh, where the first pilgrims who lived not so far from here in Plymouth, Massachusetts, had a, a feast that they offered to their neighbors who were from the Wampanoag tribe. I had it earlier. (laughs) There was two men from this Wampanoag tribe who had the names of Tisquantum and Squanto, (laughs) who were two Native American Indians who had learned to speak English through various circumstances in their lives. And these uh, two Native American Indians once came across these first pilgrims, 
and discovered that they were having a very difficult time. You know, they had moved to a foreign land and were finding that the way they knew to grow things, the things they were used to having, were not available here. And so they were really struggling. You know, a lot of them were sick and hungry. Um, Their housing was not adequate for this climate. So these two men took it upon themselves to help the pilgrims, to teach them ways that would serve them in this country, taught them about the wildlife, taught them what crops would grow, taught them what kind of a house would be suitable in winter, taught them about the trees and the shrubs and the plants around, what was poisonous and what could be of value. So it happened that after a few months, these um, pilgrims began to prosper. And then it came harvest time. And so they invited these men to bring their family to have a feast, a great gathering. On the day of this feast, the pilgrims found themselves quite surprised when there was an extended family of 90 up here. (laughs) They suddenly realized that they didn't have enough food for everybody. And so these two men noticed this too. And so the Native American people sent out for more food. And the amount of food that they brought made the feast last for three days. I like the story because it does have the roots of generosity, of caring for other people, of helping our neighbor, and of giving thanks. All qualities of heart and mind which are so valuable in our journey. Today, walking into the dining hall, we were also the recipients of great generosity, sitting down to a beautifully prepared meal. So much of what IMS is about is also as a result of generosity, that over the 25 years of its existence, there has been an enormous amount of support that has come through other people, come through the generous offerings of people's hearts. In hearing the teachings of the Buddha, this comes not just from the generosity of the hearts of the people offering it, but it dates back, it goes back to the time of the Buddha. It's really we're able to receive these teachings because of all of the generosity that has kept these teachings, this practice, alive. You know, that comes from both the people who have carried forth, done the practice, kept this alive, living tradition. It's also come from anyone who has in any way supported the teachings, feeding people, building monasteries, clothing, medicine, whatever it takes to keep this generosity, these teachings happening. It goes right back to the Buddha himself, 
who offered these teachings from the generosity of his own heart. We come from a long lineage of generosity. I often think of generosity as being the glass plate on which these teachings are served, a plate that if we aren't really looking, we wouldn't even notice because it just silently is there. And yet it has been so profound in what it has made possible. So I'd like to begin with the quality of generosity, or dana, as it is called in Pali. Dana is one of the ten paramis. One definition of the paramis is the noble qualities accompanied by compassion and skillful means and untainted by craving, conceit, and views. These qualities are the character or conduct of a bodhisattva, one who aspires to awaken, or one who is perfecting these ten paramis in order to become a fully enlightened Buddha. The other uh, qualities that are the paramis are virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. These are all qualities that we work with on our spiritual journey, that they assist the unfolding of our hearts and minds. They are also the qualities we can seek to embody in our lives so that our lives can be of benefit for all beings. We find dana or generosity, a noble quality accompanied by compassion and skillful means and untainted by craving, conceit, and views. Because in a moment of generosity, there is a letting go. There is non-attachment, renunciation. We are not so locked into the needs of a small, separate self, and instead have the benevolence of heart that can be concerned for the welfare of others. This brings about a great openness of heart, a great softening of heart. In this moment of letting go, we let go of desire or the grasping mind. And at the same time, in a moment of generosity, we are abandoning abandoning ill will or aversion. In a moment of generosity, we are also making a conscious choice in our lives that is a reflection of wisdom in the understanding that our actions have consequences, have an effect. This is the understanding of karma. 
generosity is said to be very meritorious, that there I- it is a very wholesome action. Generosity also helps the mind to become more pliable, less fixated, because we are not holding on so tightly. (coughs) So I'd like to expand a little bit on all of these aspects. First of all, here we hear uh, generosity as being another form of letting go. How many times have we heard these words in the hall? Let go, let go, let go. Joseph spoke so eloquently the other night about how it's a practice of non-clinging. It strikes me that one of the reasons that Buddha thought that generosity was so important was because often in our practice, when we're dealing with really subtle states of clinging or attachment, it can be different to experience the letting go. And yet, in a moment of generosity, of actually giving something, whether it be a material good or it be of our energy, our time, but just when we're involved in that giving, it's really easy to access the mind of letting go. It's easy to come in contact with the gladness that that brings into the heart and the peace that comes with it. Through this simple act of generosity, it can help to strengthen our confidence to know that it is possible for us, too, to let go. When we are offering, there is a gladdening of the mind that happens. So just for a moment, reflect on a time in your life where you were generous where you offered something to somebody. And then notice the effect that this has as we remember. Noticing how it can fill the body with warmth, lightness, how it can bring joy, happiness. Generosity is a way in which we can bring forth joy into our lives. There is the saying, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And this holds true for generosity. In the beginning, we can take joy in the thought of giving. In the middle, we can find joy in the act of giving. In the end, we can find joy in remembering the fact that we have given.
True generosity takes us out of our self-cherishing framework and helps us to connect with the welfare of others. It is an active expression of caring for other beings' happiness. Of course, this is not true in the cases where we may be giving to enhance our own self-image or trying to get something back. But it is present in a moment of purified giving where there is just a spontaneous gift from one being to another. In this moment, neither greed nor aversion is present in the mind. We have relinquished these states. Generosity works very directly with the overcoming of these mind states. If we make generosity a practice in our lives, we are then working on yet another level of uprooting these forces in our hearts and minds. It gives us other tools to work with. We find that generosity slowly erodes the miserliness or stinginess that we can habitually experience. It's really quite painful to give from a place of lack. And I know I've seen this in my own life. I sometimes have thought that I was born with this tightly clenched fist of hanging on and have felt tremendous gratitude for coming in contact with the teachings of Donna and also for coming in contact with so many role models of people who live a generous life. I hope this is so for each of you because it is truly inspiring to be around people who give so freely. I was just thinking today of one such person in my life was uh, Zen master Hogendaido Yamahata. Uh, He was the person who gave me my name and has been a huge source of inspiration in my own life. When he would come to do a sashin or a retreat, he would always come with two very big bags. And you know, you think, Zen monk, renunciation, what is this? What's he carrying in these bags? And then as he would open them up, you would discover that they were bags full of gifts. And it never happened that these bags were empty because once he had emptied out the gifts by giving them to all of the people where he was, he would immediately turn around and go to a shop and buy presents for the next group of people he was going to see. And it was always a delight to be in the shops with him as he was purchasing items. One such day, uh, I was in a place, I think it was called the Crystal Temple, (laughs) a New Age shop. And, you know, he loved rocks. He loved all kinds of funny little things. He loved the most bent things you could imagine. Frogs were something he truly adored. (laughs) So (laughs) ceramic frogs, (laughs) (laughs) any kind of frog it would do. (laughs) Uh, He had such a spirit about him. And in the shop this day, and this I'm veering here, but it just came to mind. (laughs) In this shop as he was uh, going to purchase things, it happened to be a day they were having a special. And what that meant was you had to barter 
for your items. At first, when he was told this, he says, I don't understand. I don't know what you mean. So the woman explained to him what bartering was. And he said, okay. And then they proceeded. And he was the most hardcore barterer <laughs> I have ever seen. <laughs> at one point, the woman looked at him and says, you learn quick. <laughs> And he get gave generously of his spirit, you know, to the woman in the shop, to any person he met on the street, wherever he was, he simply gave his presence, his being. I've been able to watch in my own life, even in the smallest way, you know, this clenched fist that I talked about, slowly beginning to open. And it, it's something so visible in my life. And sometimes it seems, um, you know, we question ourselves, is my practice really working? And this is one place where I feel like my life has been deeply touched. I often think of dana or generosity as being the hidden gem of Buddhist teachings. As many of you have probably already heard before, the Buddha always began his teachings to lay people with teachings on dana or generosity. He saw it as being so fundamental. And he once said, If beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds, even if it were their last bite their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given. The stain of miserliness overcomes their minds. It is quite likely that we do not know as the Buddha knows the power of generosity. The conditioning of our culture is not so often this way. There may be some of us who were fortunate and grew up in households that freely gave, freely offered. But often in our culture, our conditioning is that of accumulating, that of getting, that of holding on to. Even our social status sometimes seems defined by how much we have. So what we find is relinquishing, offering, letting go is not a part of the conditioning that we received. But we can cultivate generosity by letting it be a practice in our life. By letting it be a practice, it means we really consciously work with it. We work with giving and all that it brings up. It doesn't mean that just through having the thought of generosity, we will suddenly be able to give freely and often. But we may have to work with that tight fist. We do so by bringing our mindfulness to the experience learning to be non-judgmental, having an honesty 
of where we are at, letting the potential of generosity be in our hearts. It's very much like the Brahma Vihara practices. It's an aiming of the heart. We aim the heart towards this generosity and then work with whatever comes up. There's said to be three kinds of giving. The first is tentative giving, where we may at first have some reservation about giving, or we give when it feels really safe. It might be where um, we decide it's okay to give away the clothes in our closet that have been sitting there for 10 years and we haven't worn them. (laughs) It's where we have some hesitation, some reservation, but we overcome the hesitation and reservation and find ourselves able to give. And then there comes some joy in it. Another description that I heard of this type of giving is a person who would eat the best food for himself and give to the others the remainder or that which wasn't quite as tasty. I know I've done it in my own life. (laughs) The second kind of giving is sisterly or brotherly giving. We are able to give quite openly and freely to those people whom are dear to us, our friends and our family. We are able to share with them the same delicacies that we enjoy. There is an equalness in how we share. I once, uh, just this year, had an experience that when it happened, I went, oh, sisterly or brotherly giving. And it too was around those clothes in the closet. (laughs) It was a case where they hadn't been sitting there for 10 years, maybe only one year. And periodically I would think, oh, I should give those clothes away. But there was that hesitation, and I couldn't quite do it. And then I had a dear friend come to visit. And when she came, it was like, not only did I give her those clothes, but I gave her other clothes. No, it was just, it was so easy to give. It felt like an expression of my love for her and an offering. And there was such joy for both of us in it. The third kind of giving is called royal giving. It's where we're giving from a place of abundance. And that abundance isn't because we're really wealthy and we can afford to give, but that abundance is the abundance of heart and mind, where it's an overflowing of that abundant heart. My husband, Edwin, who, second time tonight, anyhow, (laughs) Um, he has been a great teacher for me around generosity, one of the role models that I have spoken of. He gives so freely of both time, energy, material goods. And he once gave me a lesson on this royal giving. It happened at a time in our lives where we were you know, financially tight. We didn't have a lot of money. We had enough to live on, but we, out of that, didn't give 
as freely as we would have liked to. And then there came a situation where we received some dana, some money. And it wasn't a huge sum of money, although it seemed quite huge to us in light of the fact that we hadn't had a lot for a while. When we received the news, it happened that we were on different continents. And we both had the same reaction. We turned around and gave away money. And then we got together on the same continent again. We talked about what we had done, and we discovered that we had given away almost the exact amount of money that we had received. When we discovered this, I looked at him and I said, you know, we're never going to be rich. (laughs) And he looked at me with all his great wisdom and he said, you know, we are rich. And that's really the abundant heart that is rich, that can share, that doesn't hold tight to ownership, but instead can freely share where sharing can happen. In the suttas, there's also a description of three different types of people. One is described as like a cloud without rain. The second one is one who rains locally. (laughs) And the third one, one who rains everywhere. The first person being a cloud without rain is one who is unable to give doesn't find that capacity of heart. The second person, one who reigns locally, is able to give to some and not to others. The third type of being, the one who reigns everywhere, is someone who is able to give to all types of beings, that endless shower of generosity. Although generosity is said to be a wholesome action, our motives for giving also play a part in the karma that is created. Probably many of us have, for different reasons, given when our motivation is not so wholesome. The suttas list some of the both wholesome and unwholesome motivations for giving, and I'm sure we'll all relate to at least a few of these. One gives with annoyance (laughs) or as a way of offending the recipient (laughs) or with the idea of insulting them. One gives from fear. One gives in return for a favor done in the past. One also may give with the hope of getting a similar favor in the future. One gives because giving is considered to be good. One gives because of altruistic motives. One gives to get a good reputation. 
one gives to adorn and beautify the mind. Generosity associated with wisdom before, during, and after the act is said to be the highest type of giving. And some examples of wise giving are giving with the understanding of karma and the benefit of planting wholesome seeds, giving with an awareness of impermanence that both the giver and the receiver and the gift itself are all impermanent. Another example of giving with wisdom is being motivated to do so through understanding that this is an action that strengthens the aims of one's efforts to awaken. If all of this seems confusing, Mother Teresa says quite simply, it does not matter how much we give, but how much love we put into giving. I know for myself my understanding of generosity or dana strengthened immensely by being able to go to Burma and to practice in this country. It was one of the strongest lessons for me there. Seeing how these teachings had been carried forth through generosity, finding myself having this opportunity to practice because of the generosity of the people in this country. You know, Burma being a very poor country, it was very humbling to be the recipient, often, of their generosity. You know, it was very visibly seen um, each day as people came to the monastery to offer food, to offer their services, and to watch the great joy that was in people's faces as they offered. There were so many times there that I was profoundly touched by generosity. One time on my last trip, when I was traveling in a car with a Burmese Sayadaw, we were driving through Sagain Hills which as I described in my last talk, I think, that it is um, such a beautiful area of Burma with the uh, monasteries, pagodas, nunneries, just dotting the hilltops, you know, in these beautiful hills with the Irrawaddy River. And then as we were driving along in this car, suddenly the Sayadaw says to me, you know, everything you see around you has been donated. And it just struck me in that moment. Now, I remembered back to something the Buddha once said, how someone asked him, where should we give? And he said, we should give where we have confidence. And so what I could see in that moment was how much confidence these people had 
in the teachings of the Buddha that they could offer so freely. In being in Burma, I also experienced how contagious this giving can be and the effect of it. You know, in being the recipient of dana as a nun, even before a nun, in times when I had been there as a laywoman doing intensive practice and receiving, you know, just being, um, having so much generosity, it made me want to practice diligently. It made me want to be a worthy recipient. You know, it helped me to give totally to my practice. It also had the effect that every time I left Burma, I left with an empty suitcase, that I would leave all the money I had, I would leave anything that I thought could be of any value to anyone there. I would simply leave it behind. And I knew that the inspiration for doing this had come from the generosity of others. Generosity does not stand one-sided in its giving. It also includes receiving. When we give, it opens up others to the possibility of receiving. And I had a very strong experience again in Burma around this. As a nun, I was receiving generosity a lot from people in the form of food. This would happen when I would go to a meal, and it would be, you know, a beautiful meal. And as I would be eating this meal, other dishes would arrive. You know, different, different nuns who had cooked in their own little kuti would bring an offering. Sometimes the sayada, who was connected with the nunnery, would send down food from his table. So th- um, there was only two meals a day that I had as a nun, you know, one at 7 o'clock and one at 11 o'clock. So by 7.30 in the morning, I would find myself completely stuffed. And, you know, it would be 11 o'clock when I would have my next meal. And it also happened that people were giving me food to have as snacks in my room, you know, between 7.30 and 11 (laughs) o'clock, when I was really stuffed. (laughs) So this food started to accumulate, because I couldn't possibly eat it. Already at my meals, I was battling with the abbess of the nunnery. She kept wanting to feed me more and more. And I would be like, you know, this little girl rebelling against her mother. And she was my mother saying, eat more, eat more. And I'd go, no, no, no. And so, no, it was just too much food. And this was causing problems in the fact that the food in my room was attracting insects. And that's just the first precept. <laughs> no, <laughs> this was really turning into suffering. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know what to do about it. And then one night, I went to bed, had a dream. In the dream, it was a no-brainer. The dream said, give it away. <laughs> right, okay. So that's what I did. You know, I started to give away some of this food that had been given to me. One of the things I did was to take some apples to the nun living in the kuti beside me. She was an elderly woman who had been very sweet to me, very supportive. You know, couldn't speak much English, but she had, I could feel, you know, just her steadiness in her gentle presence and her warmth. As I went and I offered these nuns to her, 
It was a moment where in the offering, it's so receptive that for me it was the experience of the giver and the receiver disappearing. Maybe you've had these moments in your own life where you give something to somebody and their receptivity is so pure, so strong. It's as if you watch the gift go in. It's really quite striking. And it also strikes me that receiving is not always so easy. And this too may be tied up in our cultural conditioning that I don't know, I don't know why it is so, but I've watched in myself and I've watched in others where something may be offered and I say, oh, thanks, but no thanks, I'm okay. You know, as if to take it as a sign of weakness or it can be the feeling of unworthiness for whatever ways we can't open up in that moment to simply receive. It never struck me till, you know, hearing the Buddhist teachings on generosity that if I wasn't open to the receiving of a gift, I was actually, you know, stopping someone else from being able to give from that act of generosity. And so, you know, it's brought much more awareness in my own life to that of receiving. So we really, with generosity practice, work with both the giving and the receiving. And the giving and the receiving are like the ebb and the flow of the universe, the in-breath and the out-breath. So opening to both sides of the coin. The Buddha also encouraged people to reflect upon their acts of generosity. And I think this too hits against some of our cultural conditioning where you know we think to reflect on ourselves doing good things. No, it seems, mm, no, it would just be building up a stronger identity, sense of self. And yet, if you look at what's been happening in your retreat, how frequently we let ourselves reflect upon all of the things that we've done that are harmful, all, maybe all of the times when we couldn't give, and sometimes we quite revel in these memories. And yet we find it really hard to you know, consciously think of what we may have done that has been wholesome, helpful, good. So we can come into balance by remembering some of the good that we have done, whether it's through reflecting on our own conduct or remembering these moments of generosity. It's not to build ourselves up thinking, oh, what a good person I am. But instead, just gets us in touch with that gladdening of the heart, that lightening of the heart. It can also help to remind us that we do have wisdom in our lives. We have done things that bring about wholesome results. We do have the strength to relinquish, to let go. And we also have the capacity to touch others. The retreat setting 
is a unique environment to be working with generosity. Because if suddenly we all went around putting chocolates on everyone's seat, putting chocolates at people's doors, if we all followed the impulse to go out and buy gifts for other people, it wouldn't be so beneficial. So I think it's important to look at the generosity we do experience on retreat, the generosity, the gifts we do give. We give each other the gift of silence, silence which is so rare and precious that we find in only a few other places or times in our life. We offer this gift to each other. We offer the gift of spaciousness, a spaciousness that allows people to stay with their own process without our interference, without our trying to fix or change their experience, but simply allows the flowering of their own hearts and minds. We can give the gift of presence. We can do this moment by moment, bringing our full attention to our practice as best we can. The Buddha once said that the highest gift was the gift of the Dhamma. We can, what higher gift can there be than our own realization of the Dhamma? A gift we can give during this retreat is when we see a fellow yogi who's struggling, we can hold them in our hearts with metta, loving-kindness, compassion. Metta practice itself is a practice of generosity, a practice of wishing well for all beings. So dana, generosity, that which is based in letting go, non-clinging, and a compassionate expression of wisdom that is based upon the caring for the welfare of others. Generosity, helping to uproot the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds. Helping us to understand for ourselves that our actions have an effect, have consequences. In generosity, we find that the mind becomes more pliable, more resilient, and less fixated. It brings about a happiness and an ease in the mind which is essential for awakening. So this leaves me with only a few moments to touch on gratitude, which seems to come forth naturally when we have been a recipient of generosity, when we have had our hearts touched, when we open to the blessings of life. Many of us have probably experienced gratitude just simply in being able to 
participate in this retreat, knowing that this is really a rare and precious opportunity. We feel great gratitude when we reflect upon, when we reflect upon this. Gratitude is also a gladdening force, or it helps to brighten the mind when we come in contact with it. It is the response of an open heart to the many blessings of life. When we are open to what life offers in each moment, when we are opening to the truth, the way things are. This is a a poem that was inspired by my last retreat, and it's called Being Touched. Wordless tears from a timeless realm, so inexpressible and so expressed, opening not to just opening, no limit, no barriers, nothing to hang on to, no one to hang on, bowing my head, touching the sacred, touching and being touched, an outpouring of gratitude. It's mind states such as gratitude that fuel bodhicitta, that fuel the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings. It helps us to fully engage our hearts on our spiritual journey. Becomes the juice of our practice. Our gratitude may not always feel so accessible or so expansive, but it too is a practice we can work with. Turning our attention at times to what in our lives we can appreciate, what in our lives we can feel gratitude for. Very simple things that we are alive, that we have a body, that we have eyes that can see, ears that can hear, a mind that can awaken, that we have food, shelter, clothing, that we are surrounded by nature, beauty, that we are surrounded by like-minded people, Doing so helps us to soften, to connect, and to acknowledge the support that is present in our lives. Sometimes the blessings may not be so obvious. Sometimes the blessings have difficult medicine. But our life is here to wake us up in whatever form it comes. Sometimes in taking this bitter medicine, 
there may come a point where we can feel the gratitude. We can see the blessing of even difficult experiences, often hard to do in the midst of them. But there comes a point when we realize this is what we needed in order to awaken. Now, I experienced this in my own life through illness, an illness that I would never wish on myself or anybody else, an illness that challenged me really deeply, that took me into the depths of despair, that took me into the darkest parts of my being. That this illness, too, became one of the greatest teachers of my life, where it forced me to live my practice. It forced me to do it now, in the present. Learning to be grateful for the blessings of our lives. If we find ourselves really struggling with what to be grateful for, you know, it's just we're not feeling gratitude in that moment, there's one last chance. (laughs) We can be grateful for all of the things in life that we don't have, that we don't want. There can be a time in our practice here where it is helpful to do a reflection of gratitude. Now, in moments where the mind is becoming really dry, withered, we have been caught in suffering for so long, we have lost sight of any joy in the world, where it is really necessary to gladden the mind, to bring it back into balance. even though in this practice we are coming to understand the truth of suffering, we have to do so with a balanced mind, a mind that can open to both pleasure and pain. And sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we forget that joy or rapture is actually one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And in times when we're really stuck in the suffering, it becomes important to gladden the mind. So at times it may be helpful to sit for a moment, to reflect on gratitude, to let it gladden the mind, lighten the heart, to help us to move back into connection. In the cultivation of these two qualities, generosity and gratitude, it is very important that we be honest with ourselves, that we not hold them in the place of an ideal that we should do, we should be able to do, because this can lead to further torment in our own experience. It's really important that we work with it as a practice, 
not forcing, but simply the aiming of our hearts, that we do so with gentleness and kindness. Simply learning to recognize when our motivations for giving are wholesome and when they're not so wholesome. Recognizing the possibility of offering, recognizing the possibility of being thankful. So remembering to keep them as a practice where we honor the unfolding of our own path. Generosity and gratitude are two very powerful practices, two deeply inspiring states of mind that can help to guide us on our journey. Practices where we can actually begin to embody in the world these qualities, where we can call forth these qualities of heart and mind, bringing into the world greater peace, greater joy, living a life that is of benefit not just for ourselves, but is of benefit for all beings. So let's sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the value and power of generosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.